I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in Cork and I'm joined from Dublin by Murray Kinsella of the 42. How are you, Murray? I'm good, Gav. How are things? Yeah, super. Thank you very much. Delighted to be joined as always as well by Bernard Jackman. How are things in your end, Bert? Excellent, thanks, lads. Brilliant. We've got plenty to talk about. There's an absolute shit show brewing over in Leicester. We're going to chat about Munster's new recruits and how they may or may not drive them on towards... European success, going to chat doping bans, an eight-year doping ban for a former Springbok, and going to chat a little bit about Dan Carter as well later on, playing for Southbridge down in New Zealand as he kind of gears up for involvement with the Blues. Uh, So we're going to kick off, though, with what's going on in Leicester, Murray, or rather what has gone on in Leicester, which sort of all came to a head um, in the last, well, last 24 hours. Yesterday evening, I suppose it was, uh, where, how many players were released? Sorry, I'm actually, a good few of them. Yeah, so five according to Leicester, six according to multiple multiple reports, the star name being Manu Tuolagi, which I'm sure everyone's heard, read. It's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? And it's been brewing for a while. It looked like Ellis Genge and George Ford were going to be in this same crop of players who weren't happy to sign on reduced terms by this deadline that was imposed by the club, a 5pm deadline on Tuesday. But Genge and, and George Ford both did eventually agree deals. Ellis Genge took to Twitter a couple of times to tease fans. He put up a sushi emoji um, and he put up a croissant emoji as well just to just to put f- uh, fans on a bit more tenterhooks. But, I mean, it is a massive blow for supporters of the club and, and everyone involved that, that Manu Tulagi looks like, is, is gone now and maybe looking for a deal elsewhere. It'll be really interesting to see what transpires and how this all pans out. Um, but the other the other players are uh, Vianu, the fullback, uh, Kyle Eastman, Taufua, Jordan Taufua, the back row, Greg Bateman, the prop, and then Noel Reid, the Irish centre slash out half who came over there or went over there from Leinster um, and made a pretty decent impact last season. He seems to be one of the players who are in this category. Um, from my understanding, he was quite hopeful that even uh, on Tuesday that his deal was going to get sorted and and there may even be an opening potentially to sign a new deal again but it really does remain to be seen it's a pretty crazy uh, circumstance but it points to where we are in the game with clubs and unions and everyone trying to cut their costs Leicester have come out and said listen we've lost out in 5 million in terms of revenues they because they, they say they're the best supported club in, in England and usually that means lots of revenues coming in for, for home games they say they had to make these cuts to to player salaries and a lot of the squad it seems have agreed to those reduced terms as you've seen in other clubs like Northampton and Sale etc all these clubs have essentially re-signed their entire squads even including a couple of new signings on reduced contracts um, but there was a big hold up in Leicester and it seems the players were unhappy to take those reduced terms um, there was talk about players potentially recouping some of that money when the club when Leicester returns to profitability, but from a player's point of view, you kind of wonder when are they going to make profit? They haven't done that in the past, as we know with English clubs, haven't made any profit. 
So it really is a complicated, complex situation. But at the moment, you have Manu Tuolagi, one of the best players in the world, essentially without a club. And you can imagine a couple of those French sides are certainly going to be circling and looking to see if they have any room in their budget to bring him in. But pretty crazy stuff. Absolutely crazy. He won't be without his suitors, that's for sure. Bernard, I suppose the other side of this... um Aside from the players obviously feeling disgruntled at how this was handled, from the perspective of a, a Leicester supporter, it would have been so annoying, I'd imagine, last night to have read about this news when you consider that only earlier in the day a statement on the club website said that a small number of players would be departing and yet you wind up with pr- losing probably your best player, a, a really talented fullback and, and a, a, another handful of, of very good players for your club. Like I, the club seemed to sort of downplay it um, only a few hours before it emerged that via the chief executive, Andrea Pynchon, who named the players up for, upright uh, or outright. Um, I, I don't know how that uh, even really seemed to make sense to them to do that, if you know what I mean, like to, to try to... Um, I guess, like, make it seem as though it was it was no major deal only hours before confirming that it was an absolute shit show. Yeah, I, maybe she, maybe they were bad advice, or maybe they're overconfident in, in, in their hand, um, and expected the players to cave in. Uh, you know, and often these deals are done. You know, uh, players often accept it at the very last moment. I suppose from a from a Leicester board point of view, they probably looked, you know, at the at the market globally and went you know realistically in the premiership are these are these players going to be able to get a similar salary as to the one they were they were entitled even with the with the with the wage reduction and probably felt they weren't and also to be honest a lot of the french clubs are you know are, are trying to reduce costs rather than than go and spend half a million on a on a man or two like the only thing the only difference is um in the in france um a wealthy president may just uh, you know, go to his head director of rugby or, or head coach and go. You know, I, I want to give you the the last piece of the jigsaw so you can you know achieve our goal next year, which is qualify for Europe or um, or win a top fourteen. And certainly, Manu Tuilagi um, is a player that you know any coach would make a special effort for. And a president, a president could feel you know he's the missing missing piece of the jigsaw to um, to launch the new season ticket sales or corporate. Corporate hospitality, like he is a an absolute, you know, top top class player who um, can help you be successful on the field, but also is exactly the type of profile that you know a, a big English club would want. Um, and it'll just be interesting to see who has who has money left. You know, we're reading stories about Bezier being taken over by a, a consortium from uh, from the Middle East and looking for you know Michael Cech, uh, uh to be the coach and put together a. Um, a, a Galactico type squad to get out of Pro D2 and to go and, and, and be competitive in top 14 you know there may be an option um, or would you know would Stade Francais would Stade, uh, who have obviously a very rich benefactor um, who've got their salary cap sorted out um, haven't been at the maximum would they be in a position to, to, to sign someone like someone like him but there's not that many options but again you have to imagine his agent has something lined up because you don't turn down half a million a year or whatever, 400,000 a year with a reduction without um, something concrete, you know, or, or very close to being locked down somewhere else. I don't think, you know, um, just given how volatile the market is, look at, at a normal time, you know, Tulagi is a free agent. He has 
he has seven or eight different clubs who can afford him. Um, you know, looking for him just at the moment, it's, it's a little bit difficult. And uh, yeah, look, in some ways, I admire them for for sticking to their guns. Uh, and you know, um, but I think from a Leicester fan point of view, I think a lot of the fans will see the pain that the club are suffering. You know, five million loss, thirty-one members of staff being made redundant, uh, the others players, the other players taking taking the pay cut. And I think some of the fans will will maybe back the club on this. I mean, um, you know, what can they do if they if they give in to those five? You know, they lose the rest. So uh, it's a it's a difficult situation. But I think Leicester fans will look at Manatulagi over the last four or five years and and the amount of injuries he's had and, and how little he's played for Leicester and and the w- wages he's he's earned and maybe feel there should have been a little bit of loyalty. And I completely understand Manu's point of view. I mean, um, you know, injuries part a risk of the game, but. Uh, I, I don't think the club will lose massively in, in terms of the supporters feeling they've been, you know, hard done by. I, I just think they're a club without a benefactor. It's a, it's it's more of a community club um, than than say a, you know a, a Bristol or a Bath in terms of having access to a to outside funding. And yeah, it's it's just a business model that they have at the moment. It's interesting that Pynchon did say there's no blame game here. This people we're talking about. Everyone has their own circumstances and own thoughts about what they can or can't do or will or won't do. What's vital now is that we have a squad that's all on board, believes in what we're doing moving forward and starts to push forward. If some couldn't, as in if some couldn't do that, then we wish them well, shake them by the hand metaphorically because of COVID and wish them well for the next chapter. It's really no more or less sinister than that. It's simply that we had to go down one path. The majority of people are going down that path with us and a handful couldn't. So she says that, I guess, there's no blame game, but I, it, it, seems as that, it seems as though that statement gets a little bit backhanded towards the back end of it. Um, but Maria, like the, as, as Bernard says, with 31 staff redundancies as well, a 5 million loss, we, we have touched upon this plenty in fairness, but it just kind of reminds you of the... The, the kind of human toll of all of this as well I guess we we might be tempted into looking at players as nearly commodities or people who are earning massive money and by the way most of them really aren't but most clubs in the world are going to be affected by this really and like 31 redundancies at a club especially at a community club like Leicester isn't something to kind of um, to turn your head from either you know like that's that's a really significant uh, loss of people who are probably ingrained in that club, people who are losing their jobs. It sure is, absolutely. And I mean, this is obviously bigger than rugby, as we've mentioned a few times. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening has probably had to deal with or pe- people they know and love and their family have had to deal with this reality of the the economy and the global state of things at the moment. And, and pay cuts are are simply that, they're a reality. It's been happening. And anyone who comes through and is, is fortunate enough to be in work... Uh, is going to be happy that when we get to the other side of this, hopefully. Um, and Roby's no different. That's just what's had to happen. And I suppose, I mean, even before COVID-19, like myself and Bernard, I've talked about in the past, there was probably a feeling that the salaries for players were were getting a little bit high in, in certain circumstances, that maybe those marquee players were um, earning kind of outlandish sums compared to what the, the average rugby player was. Now, I've great... Uh, I suppose sympathy with what rugby players do for a living it's for me in many ways it's a really horrific job almost the physical toll it takes there's a lot of pressure obviously there's 
complete uncertainty at times. Uh, contracts are so short. So I, I can definitely understand them wanting to earn as much as they possibly can in that short-term career. But the, the game isn't making a lot of money and clubs like Leicester aren't making profit. It's not like... It's not like they've been churning out um, millions of, of pounds every year for people in the on their executive board or whoever is involved in that side of it. It's not it's not a profit making business, and um, certainly in the English clubs anyway. So there's that balance there. It, I guess it's all interesting as well in the light of what's happening in Ireland again. Another discussion between the RFU and Rugby Players Ireland yesterday, and still no agreement on those possible player. Uh, salary cuts moving on from the deferral scheme onto salary cuts of potentially up to 20 percent and they're still trying to trash out the circumstances and or sorry the i suppose the the actual details of that um and they're going to meet again this week and hopefully they'll they'll come to terms there and and whatever is decided is decided before, before it drags on into further into pre-season and, and proves to be a distraction but I, I guess the players want to know exactly where they are if you and are in terms of their financial situation that maybe that's a little bit different to some of the English clubs and there is a bit more of a cash reserve there and and you know money from CVC money from land deal whatever whatever it is and uh, before they accept that that's happened but then you look at the rest of the RFU and the, the staff the non-playing staff have moved on to four day we- working weeks and, and 20% pay cuts as well that's really tough for everyone and it, it takes a lot of adjustment but that is the reality unfortunately of both rugby and really everyone else in life so it's very much a reflection of what we're all going through really with rugby albeit it makes headlines and it's it's more fascinating to many people i guess and and there's big star names involved it's it's simply a reflection of what we're all going through certainly is Uh, bernard you touched upon them there they may emerge as a a major player over the next year or two who will be able to offer players some of the salaries that they had previously commanding or at least something resembling them uh bezier if people haven't been following the developments there could you run us through it uh just what what's going on there and how likely this is to actually go through the attempted takeover yeah it's a, it's a very strange one for me i mean you know you would um th- there's been lots of rumors over the last four or five years of of middle eastern um investors looking to get um a stake or take over a club in in the top 14 and um, I know Stade Francais at a couple of different occasions were uh, were touted as being the most likely um, most likely club to to benefit from that, particularly because obviously the uh, proximity of Paris Saint Germain and um, you know it's a it's a historic club with a a global following to a certain extent, a, a great stadium and a great location. Um, that didn't come to pass, and and probably over the last two or three months, um, you know, there's been really strong rumors of um of a potential takeover for a club down south of france in, in bezier now bezier are a very historic um historic club and uh you know have won top 14 titles or top 16 titles in, in the past but they've pretty much been um been down under look for for quite a while now they have a beautiful stadium and um it's a it's a beautiful part of uh of, of france but it's very close to it's very close to you know historic clubs like Narbonne um, and Perpignan, and, and not too far away from Montpellier either. So probably Montpellier is, is the biggest city, and you know that's probably the most um, the club best suited to, in terms of being able to draw a crowd on a regular basis. Even if Bézier were back in the top fourteen with a championship team, I'm just not sure the population would be big enough to um, to fill that stadium uh, regularly. But anyway, they yeah, there's. 
it's been on off on off over the last couple of weeks but um it does seem that uh, i just read an article this morning that um the league are waiting for the for the paperwork now they've had discussions with this with this consortium and um the former president of stade Toulousain um has agreed to be the president of, of Bézier and, and be the representative on on the board etc um if if the deal gets done so yeah, it's it's a fascinating one. I mean, they, you know, they're being linked with Michael Cheka as their as their coach. They were being linked with um, being potential suitors for the likes of Tuilagi or or Ellis Genge um, uh, over the last week or two when you know when their futures weren't certain. But uh, it, it's I just don't really see why if you you know if they bought a club um, in Marseille or you know one of the other big big cities, I, I would I would think it makes more sense. But look at we don't know what the the real attraction is um but yeah it would be it would massively i suppose turn up um pro d2 which this year had no promotion uh, from it so clubs like perpignan oina grenoble um are all and actually columbia columbia would have been promoted they were they're actually top of the, the the league this year so but big clubs like perpignan oina and, and grenoble who um who see themselves as being top 14 uh, contenders um, might have another, you know, another strong comp- competitor. Um, with, with if Bezier get that cash that they're being promised, yeah, it would be fascinating to see another team added to that mix. And this potential takeover from people uh, from the United Arab Emirates, Murray, is apparently being led by Christoph Dominici as well, which is uh, probably to to fans of Bezier and maybe to an extent fans of other French clubs somewhat of a, of a relief or, or a, a positive in that it's not just people coming from further afield really without any knowledge of the sport trying to uh, turn a quick buck or you know uh, like really create a, a vanity project without having a, an understanding of the heritage of it because if it is kind of being led or if there is a liaison in somebody like Dominici at least there is that familiarity and awareness of what might be required to make something like this work yeah, definitely. Uh, he he may, it makes sense to have that kind of intermediary figure and someone who can negotiate between parties potentially. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how his involvement began with the the consortium we were trying to buy in, but he's certainly a well known figure in in France from his days with with Stade Francais and with the national team. I think he had over sixty caps, maybe seventy caps, and as we know, pretty stylish winger. I think he used to star in that calendar that Stade Francais used to do a lot. He was a, a kind of flamboyant figure as well in that way, but um, really well known. And I guess it makes sense to have a, a figurehead like that, someone who, even when the headlines are coming out, people can um, associate with as well. I'll be really interested to see, as like Bernard's outlined, the the kind of background of Bézier there and, and really interested to see what happens. They have a couple of Irish players there actually as well, Jamie Hagan. Uh, was there for the last couple of years and John Madigan the former Munster second row has just signed for them ahead of next season so I'm sure they'd welcome um, the big influx of uh, backing if, if it does go ahead and it'll be interesting to see how they get on in, in Pro D2 next year and and just French rugby in general it's a really interesting time as well even a, a tier below that they're launching that National League um, so basically it was Fed 1 just Federal 1 was just below Pro D2 but they wanted to get a, a third almost I suppose professional division into the the French tiers and and they're launching a league called National next season. So really interested to see how that develops or whether it develops, whether it becomes uh, an outlet. But it certainly looks like the French are taking it very seriously in terms of growing their own league structures. And I guess in what in in the light of what we've discussed around 
European competition that might be a little bit worrying but uh, yeah there's lots of lots of spaces to watch in, in French rugby as always as always Murray sticking with yourself then you had a chat with Peter Romani on Wednesday I believe or was it Wednesday or Tuesday Wednesday yeah it was yesterday it was yesterday right yeah uh, and he well among other topics he was talking about Munster's new recruits and we have obviously spoken about them um I'd say in reasonable detail in in past episodes, but it's been a while and they're here now as well. So it feels that little bit more tangible. And I guess the very basic question to begin with is, uh, do you see these new recruits as being a kind of a turning point or or at least a a catalyst that could catapult Monster towards actually getting into European finals and legitimately challenging for uh, Champions Cups, whereas over the past seven, eight years, they've been close-ish, but no cigar, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I definitely do. And as soon as the signings were made and announced, I remember writing a piece. I think the headline was, these two signings turn Munster into genuine European contenders. And I think that's the case. It'll obviously take them a while to settle in and build cohesion and understanding and, and all of that. But when you look at the skill sets they bring, it's going to make Munster such a better team. Snyman does things as a second row that not a lot of players really around the world can do with his offloading, his passing. He's obviously extremely physical. He's good in the line out. He's six foot ten or six foot eleven, as Peter Romani was remarking on. He's a big unit, and he's got great power. He, when he's really well applied, like he was in the in the World Cup, obviously by the box, he's a, a really devastatingly effective player. Damien Damien Dillende is definitely one of the best players in the position obviously in the world and has an underrated passing game Brian Haban actually said he thinks he's one of the best passers he's ever seen um, and I thought we saw a lot of that in the World Cup he's extremely good at winning the gain line very good at getting his body extremely low to the ground and winning a kind of shoulder battle with a tackler and um, and almost driving in underneath them while managing to stay on his feet it's a pretty exceptional skill but he's got a lot more to his game. He's adding in kicking in the last couple of years and really has matured and rounded out. The other two guys who come in, just to mention them briefly, are, are Matt Gallagher, the fullback from Saracens. He's Irish qualified. Uh, he's a really good athlete and he still has a, a bit of room to grow, I think. But I think he'll put uh, Mike Haley under pressure straight away at, at fullback. And and then Roman Salanoa, the tight head prop, who we've discussed a few times, he's got major potential. So they're four really excellent signings. And I think particularly with the two Springboks, they are going to... They've been signed to push Munster to next level and I definitely think they can do that as long as things settle in and um, bed in quite early. It is exciting. Omani himself sounded quite enthusiastic and it's hard to get him sounding that way when you're doing media interviews with him, but he was talking about Orgy Snyman being in his his uh, training group and being a very impressive looking man by all accounts he does have a bit of work to do on his fitness I think he um he's come from Japan and then he was back in South Africa and then he was in quarantine so probably not exactly where he was during the World Cup but that's probably understandable and there's no doubt he'll be ready to go whenever Munster are, are back in August so it's very exciting for for the players to get in uh, teammates of that caliber and I certainly think they're good enough to push them on to the next level. Bernard Snyman and Dillende in particular you will have been in teams, obviously, where there have been marquee signings that have come in, be it from Ireland or abroad, probably more usually. What kind of an impact does somebody like that or two people like that make on a dressing room where like, they're coming in as, as World Cup winners with this bedrock of, of 
experience, but also just that type of winning culture, which I know is a kind of buzz term, but will add something surely to Munster's arsenal in that they have not been winning, frankly, over the past decade and more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but like, they haven't been far away, so they've been, you know, consistent semi-finalists and uh, um, not a million miles from 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 being finalists or, or potentially win the trophy. And I, I think two players of of that caliber can be the the difference in terms of making them real contenders. Um, you know, similarity to, to when I was in Leinster, 2008, we won the Celtic League, and that summer we signed Easton Sea with CJ Van Linden and Rocky Elsom, and just. The message that sends to the dressing room, um, in terms of the ambition of the of the province, in terms of um, you know the quality of training, the ability to have you know a match, uh, someone who can just make the difference in a game. And we all know Rocky, you know, I think he got six man of matches out of nine in that European uh, Cup campaign. And you know that's that's what you need. You need world class players who can do something different. And ironically. Um, uh, the head coach of Honda Heat, where where Snyman was presented uh, presented to my coaching group two weeks ago, and uh, showed some footage of of the of the Honda Heat attack, and uh, Snyman was um, pretty uh, pretty evident in it, and and some of the things he was doing for them, I mean, uh, you know, he was a massive co- uh, source of of go forward, and um, you know, he, he's going to be absolutely brilliant for. For months, he's only 25 years of age, uh, so he's in his prime, and, and you know he, he might be in great condition at the moment, but he'll he'll get back, um, you know, back to to match fitness, you know, really quickly, and uh, I think he can be huge for them, and and Delande as well. I mean, it's probably the most impressive, you know, duo that any club in in Europe have have, have brought in over the off season, and uh, you know, if it was a, if it was a struggling team without a, a culture and a, a and an identity, you know, maybe you'd say it'll take them a while to. Uh, to turn around, but no, with Munster, as I said, I think they weren't far away, and also their coaching staff. You know, uh, you know, Roundtree was only only came in after the after the World Cup. Um, himself, Larkham, uh, and Van Gran had never worked together before, so I think this period of lockdown will have been unbelievable for them, and actually probably more beneficial for them than if it came at the start. I mean, they've had that little block of of November, December, January, February where they were working together. Um, so they know each other a lot better. They know how they, you know, what areas of the game they're they're very strong on. And I think that this period for Munster, um, in terms of being able to get that cohesion in their coaching staff and fine tune their game plan, plus you know the addition of 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 these two in particular, but obviously all four recruits. Um, you know, it's it's very exciting if you're a Munster fan. You you'd be really, I suppose, optimistic that this could be a big year for you. Yeah, sticking with the coaches, Bernard, as you say, like this has uh, probably been a marvellous opportunity for them to, to get to know each other better, get to know how the other uh, one another sort of operate as well, and you're bringing that into a de facto pre-season just with that little bit more familiarity. Um, in terms of then how they actually deploy these signings, and I think in particular the Elendi, because Murray outlined some of his skill set there, um, he is actually a, a wonderful passer of the ball. Uh, he can kick a little bit as well. He's definitely added that to his his uh, makeup over the last couple of years. And yet we've probably seen with South Africa, uh, he's largely used it as uh, in nearly a kind of a Robbie Henshaw role at times, where you wonder if he if they're getting the most out of him given his skill set. And I think the same could probably be said actually for how Monster have used 
Rory Scannell over the last three or four years where Scannell has a, a really wide array of skills. He's, he's a fantastic passer. He's got a, a, as they call it, a cultured left boot. I don't know why a, a right boot is never cultured, but he, de- he definitely has a really strong kicking game. And yet they sort of use him more just to, to take it up to contact and, and build phases and so on. So like, do you think that Van Gran and Larkham in particular will have a plan to kind of get more out of, of Dialende then they get out of scandal, if that makes sense? Or do you foresee him maybe being used more so as just that sort of physical presence in midfield to, to get over the gain line and get the ball rolling, so to speak? Yeah, I think they'll vary it, to be honest. I think, you know, the huge, huge key for Munster's success is Carberry, who, you know, is not a new recruit. But, um, you know, if you have if you have Joey Carberry, um, Delande, Chris Farrell, you know, Keith Earls, Andrew Conway, uh, Haley or Gallagher, um, you know, you can play any way you want. Uh, so you have the, you know, both Chris and Delande will, will, will get you over the game line, um, but they both are very good passers. And, and you know, you've got real, you know, I suppose, uh, exciting players and, and talent on, on the edges as well. And, you know, Larkham's, Larkham's DNA isn't, um, isn't really built around just, you know, setting targets and, and um, playing a high, you know, a high percentage kicking game. And they will... I think they will play, um, but I think Joey is the key man. I think if Joey gets fit, um, then there's a lot you can do with, with that 10, 12, 13. Um, and I, I think they, on paper, they can be as, as exciting as back line that's in the Pro 14 for sure. And, um, you know, up there in the top four or five in, in Europe. So, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't imagine he's just there to be that kind of crash ball um, merchant and again I think given this period of lockdown and given a longish pre-season to a certain extent um, you know and I, they've been able to do quite a bit of stuff around tactic, tactical um, development with the players I think they'll be going into this uh, you know this season and at this end of the season and next season in, in a really good place and it's just you know as I said it's, it's exciting for the league I think you know, even seen yesterday, Reese Carey come back to the Cardiff Blues. Um, you know, Corey Hill has gone there. Um, the Dragons have been able to bring in, you know, uh, Holmes and Nick Tompkins, who obviously want to come back to, to Wales. Uh, you know, the league seems to be getting uh, stronger. And, um, yeah, I, I would I would say Munster, Munster for definitely got stronger. And just to touch upon Gallagher as well, Bernard, um, Murray says he could see Gallagher actually challenging Mike Haley for a position pretty much straight away. Uh, he's probably a small bit um, less familiar to people uh, than the two Springboks that are coming over. Uh, how much of him did you see for, for Saracens? And do you actually see him as being a, a challenger for a, a starting berth kind of upon arrival? Or, or is it one that you could see maybe working a, after a, a little period of, of settling in and just being able to develop within that monster environment? I think you can put it up to you know uh, straight away, to be honest. I probably... To be honest, I haven't been massively impressed with Haley. Um, I think he's he still hasn't shown his, his his top form or potential. And again, he's probably someone who will, will benefit from this this period of just um, being able to integrate, you know, better and and, uh, and and really have a clear understanding of how they want him to play. He seems to sometimes get a little bit caught in two minds um, around whether to run kick, and that's never a good thing. But yeah, I think he's he's definitely that position's up up for grabs and. Uh, you know, to have you know two quality players in that position, um, you know, is is a huge boost for for Munster. But Gallagher, if I was Gallagher, I'd be saying, 
yeah, I, I can get in and, and, and start the season as number one. Murray, it also does add a little bit of pressure to Van Gran and Larkin in particular as we're talking about the backs. Just having like a potential back line that Bernard has outlined there of Carberry, maybe Earls on the left, D'Alende and Farrell, Conway and let's say Haley, but potentially Gallagher as well. Uh, like that is probably, as Bernard says, up there with the best in Europe. And so if things don't kind of go right, uh, then you're you're under the spotlight again pretty much straight away. Well, not upon resumption of, of play, obviously, but say pretty much straight away at the start of next season. Yeah, you definitely are. And, and that's, again, something that we've written about in the 42 is that the squad of the strength puts you under that expectation. And obviously the RFU are, are big fans of Van Grans and Munster as well. He's contracted there to 2022. Um, and... They've obviously been competitive. They've been those semi-finals, but there's always the talk about winning trophies. And Ian Fannigan, the the new CEO, underlined it again when we spoke to him recently. You know, saying that trophies are the the aim of this province, and I suppose they haven't had that success since 2011. And um, I suppose patience wears thinner and thinner as you go on, particularly when you've got these kind of boosts and you've been given this kind of I suppose leeway as well by the RFU to sign two non-Irish qualified players. In, in such prominent positions and, and deny Irish players those opportunities that they would have had so it is a, a big um, it is a big boost for the province but it also comes with that pressure and that expectation to win <laughs> uh, and whether that's in the Pro 14 or whether that's in Europe fans and media and the people on the inside as well will be expecting that and, and to a greater degree than ever it's it's handy almost for Munster that listen in four games time they could have a, a trophy the season kicks off you play two interpros you have your semi-final and then there's a final um, and immediately you could have that trophy and then therefore the, the burden comes off but I do think there will be that element of it as well and particularly for Van Gran as the head coach as the leader of it all there's a there's a pressure on I suppose his project to to deliver an end result given the the boost they've got Certainly is. Uh, two Springboks arriving into Munster and then an ex-Springbok handed an eight-year doping ban after a third positive test, Murray. Uh, it's a bit of a, again, um, I don't know, uh, it, it is a shit show really and for all intents and purposes. Like three, <laughs> getting done three times is kind of beyond farce. Uh, I, I look, an eight-year, an eight-year ban essentially ends Malazzi, Chili Boy, Ralapelli's career so um, but I I don't think he can have any complaints really can he no and strange enough there is some stuff coming out of South Africa I saw um, Peter Dilley is the former uh, Springbok coach kind of I saw sympathising with him and I find it hard to find any emotion like that I wasn't in the slightest bit surprised really when you heard about this um, false or negative test rather to, to be I suppose to be clear on, he's tested positive three times. In the first case, which was um, at the start of this kind of 10-year period, it was ruled that he was in no fault. He only got, got a reprimand. It was, I suppose, essentially put in the, the independent panel in that case, decided that it was not his fault that he'd taken on board this banned substance. It was a, an error by um, some of the team management or, or whatever. So that one was kind of choked off. And I suppose they've ruled this one as a second doping offence. The first one where he actually got a ban was for two years when he was with Toulouse and he tested positive for an anabolic steroid and he served that two-year ban came back actually got back into the spring box setup and he played for the the boxes recently as 
it was 2018 when he got his last cap but um last year again he, he tested positive uh, and that that's it really for his career zera 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 uh, I struggle with the pronunciation because they're not substances that are familiar to me but an anabolic agent in an out of competition test last year obviously someone like this would be targeted for for further testing um, and there are certainly players that the authorities always go after and, and particularly out of competition but the, the eight-year ban is certainly fitting of someone who was given that second chance I suppose a two-year ban for many isn't enough for doping um, but it gives you the chance to, I suppose, reform and, and go back and and play again. And he's been caught, uh, as the independent panel has decided, cheating again and, and deserves the eight-year ban in their eyes. He's certainly at fault in this time. Um, and that's it. That's his career over. Unless there's an appeal and a success in that, you would imagine that won't be the case. But uh, like you can only greet this as positive because we don't want anyone using banned substances. We don't want cheating in the sport. And the harsher a sanction is, the more it's going to deter, hopefully, people from, from doing this. Um, we've obviously had a, a case in Ireland quite recently as well that was a reminder of social players, obviously on the different scale with James Cronin just getting one month of a ban. And, and it was found that his was unintentional, a, a dispensing error from the pharmacy. But probably, again, a reminder to players that they're responsible. Um, but certainly, Ralapelli's is at a very, very different end of the scale. Um, and an eight-year ban is is totally fitting, I think. Yeah, as you say, the first one was was kind of chalked off as being not his fault. Uh, look, I think when you test positive twice subsequently, it sheds new light on on that first one as well. Look, uh, ultimately, look, you, yeah, you can say there are definitely two for which he is at fault, uh, which are more than enough to to end a career. I think everybody would would be in agreement with that. Um, Bernard, like as Murray says there, some of the noises coming out of South Africa, though, are, have been a little bit curious in relation to this. And as much as like I'm not attempting to pat Ireland or Irish rugby on the back for how it deals with doping or on occasion the way it's framed, the lack thereof, which I think is in itself probably, um, I don't know, uh, a little bit off off. Uh, I don't know off point like South Africa do seem to have a just a, a culturally different way of, of kind of um, computing and, and dealing with doping like it doesn't seem to be as morally reprehensible as we might consider it here or, or in other countries. countries yeah it's it's worrying uh, to be honest the the reaction that he's been he's been kind of uh, congratulated for this uh, and you know, people saying it's too harsh. I mean, you know, realistically, he should never, he'll never play again, uh, thankfully. And, um, you know, the fact is, you know, th- it makes the, I suppose, the first time he got off make you make, make you a little bit more skeptical. Look, there's, there's no positive to come out of this unless the only positive that could come out of this is if, if Chili Boy actually um, was able to, I suppose, um, expose where he, where he got the drugs and, and were any of them. You know, from within the game, um, because uh, it's just, you know, it's it's crazy. I, I played I played against him uh, back in the day, and I got I met him a few times when he was in Toulouse. Um, and it comes across as a you know as a very very nice fella, but um, you know he, what he's what he's done is 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 outlandish and crazy, and uh, I'm delighted he's been caught, and, and uh, um, I'm delighted his career's over now because um, you know to fail three drug tests is 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 absolutely farcical and um i mean uh, as i said yeah it's i'm glad he's caught and um you know the fact 
that it's an eight-year ban. Um, and Finish's career is is justified, in my opinion. And the only, as I said, the only other positive that could come out of it is if he if he kind of educates others around, you know, um, not not educating them around the dangers of it, of of it more so, but probably tells the authorities kind of where where it all happened and um, if there's anyone linked to, to coaching or or anyone that's within the, the game, uh, that they should be banned as well and, and called out. Better news then in the Southern Hemisphere, Murray, to wrap on, and that's that Dan Carter will line out for his home club, Southbridge, this weekend with the Blues on a bye in Super Rugby. I absolutely love this about New Zealand. We see it actually fairly regularly uh, where uh, even an all-black or, or a very high-profile player uh, for a Super Rugby franchise might be working his way back to fitness and lines out for their their local club uh it's just a, a kind of a nice spin on the modern game and something that we probably are lacking here and have been probably over the past 15 or so years but also elsewhere as well like i do think it's it's kind of almost unique to new zealand or at least more prevalent there that this opportunity is there for the club as well as the player yeah i think it's deadly i think it's going to be pretty cool for southbridge a little rural town of around 900 people in uh, Canterbury and uh, you'd imagine there's going to be a massive turnout for this game um, I, I, it'll be interesting for the opposition who are they playing West Melton is the opposition team whoever is lined up at 10 opposite them in 12 and, and trying to stop and making line breaks and throwing beautiful passes it's really cool and it's really good timing obviously for, for the club because um, you know super, there's obviously with COVID-19 and stuff there's there's been less high level rugby and there's less of that going on and it makes sense for Dan Carter to build a bit of match fitness and get back on the pitch because he hasn't played for the Blues yet after signing late as an injury replacement um, and he, he played back in 2014 as well when he was coming back from injury I think in 2009 as well after his Achilles so he's done it before and it's a lovely connection to have Ardi Savea did it um, last weekend he played for Oriental Rangatai in Wellington he scored a try in a big win for them um, and it definitely is a cool thing to do. Like, I'd actually be interested in going back and counting up how many times it has happened. My impression wouldn't be that it's all that frequent, to be perfectly honest. Um, probably more so than in Ireland. But I, I don't think, I don't see the opportunities, say, in Ireland for Ireland internationals to be playing AAL games, if if I'm being blunt about it. Because we, we often talk about game management, etc. Yeah, if they're coming back from injury, it, it might make sense if there is an opening there. But there's usually a Pro 14 game or... The provinces like their A fixtures, obviously as well. We we wouldn't really see an Ireland international play in those even. Uh, O'Connell, Paul O'Connell played for Young Monster famously enough in twenty thirteen, when he was coming back from injury. But that was a, a pretty kind of unique circumstance. Um, I think it would be really cool, obviously, if there were Ireland internationals playing in the AL. But I I have to say I don't really see the opening all that much. James Cronin did it last October with uh, Highfield. He scored a hat trick actually against Nace. It was his first appearance for eight years. Um, and you do see a lot of provincial players playing in the AL week in, week out, and it's a really good stepping stone, I think, for a lot of those guys and um, even a lot of people in the Munster squad, if we're talking about some of the young guys coming in at the other end of the squad, a lot of them, like Alex McHenry, etc., have, have shone in the AIL, so it's a it's got its pl- place there, and it's brilliant. It would be great, obviously, if there were more high-profile high players, but um, I, I don't know, I think it's probably easy to suggest we should have more Ireland players in the AIL but the circumstances of actually doing it I think are, are tricky enough but for Southbridge for New Zealand rugby this is this is cool I'll be really interested to hear how he goes yeah Bernard as as Murray says it's probably uh, not feasible to have Ireland internationals playing in the AIL week in 
week out necessarily. But uh, do you think there's been an improvement over the last couple of years in some provincial players, particularly younger players, remaining involved with their clubs, actually getting game time with their clubs? Uh, it, it seems maybe as though it might happen a little bit more in Munster and with some of the Munster AIL clubs than it does in Leinster, although correct me if I'm wrong there, just in terms of the, the numbers of them that are involved consistently with the likes of Con versus, say, some of the Leinster lads that might be playing for Lansdowne and so on? Yeah, I think I think Leo, um, he, he has a good relationship with the with the clubs. There's quite a few of the, of the academy and, and development guys attached to, to UCD um, and, you know, they've, they had a very good season and, and they have... They have let them back to play for their clubs. The, I suppose the issue has probably been, um, you know, the B and I Cup and and A competitions and A Leinster A playing against Irish under twenties as a warm up game and things like that. So once your weeks um, get filled, uh, and then the fact that Leinster have so many players playing for you know, playing for Ireland um, at the World Cup, so a lot of the fringe guys were playing during the World Cup, and then um, you know, obviously during the start of the Six Nations. So the Leinster players probably over the last couple of years and 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 Munster player all the provincial all the contracted players have probably got enough game time through the representative side of things whether it's European Cup Pro 14 BNI Cup um etc and our season is far longer than the than the Kiwi season um so there ha- there isn't as many opportunities for for our top end players um to go back to their clubs but I think you know where there is a gap, and maybe with this with COVID nineteen and 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 a bit of a a, a clampdown on on travel that's not overly necessary. You know, I, I find it hard to see how there'll be an A comp next year. So I would imagine that you know there will be a lot more players available, and um, you know game time is is brilliant. As a professional player, you know you want to play a game at the weekend, and obviously you want to play as high as level as possible. Um, and if you're contracted to a province, you want to play for them. But if not, you want to play. And you know it's it's it, it just makes makes your week as such, and uh, and it's great to have a, a different network, you know, and go, uh, so either play for a club that you're not attached to traditionally. So Carter, obviously, you know, his background was Crusaders and and, and Canterbury, so um, you know he's getting a chance to play, you know, for a club he doesn't know a huge amount about about this week, which is which is great, but also you know the opportunity to go back to the club that helped develop you is is phenomenal as well. So it would be. It's something I think is is great when it when it works. I just think that Northern Hemisphere season is so long. It's highly unlikely our internationals, our current internationals, will will get to play much. But definitely, if an opportunity arises through a suspension or come back from injury, and that's the best possible stepping stone back, well then definitely take it. But I do see a lot more professional players playing in the IL One A um, next year, uh, just because probably a, a a condensed A program. Sounds good. That's pleasure as always. Thanks very much. Cheers, Gav. Cheers, Birch. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks to everybody who tuned in at home as well. We'll be back with a members pod. Yourself and Owen Toolan on Monday, Murray, is it? Yeah, we're going to chat about, about Aussie Super Rugby, which is kicking off tomorrow. So plenty more rugby. Um, I was actually just keeping an eye on the rugby league there. It's gone into um, Golden Point or Golden... Yeah, Golden Point, extra time. It's pretty exciting stuff. There's actually a couple of, uh, there's an Irish qualified player playing, Luke Keary. So there's a couple of guys in the NRL who are Irish qualified. Maybe we should uh, do a podcast about them at some stage. But yeah, we'll be back on Monday talking Super Rugby. Keary with a lovely crossfield kick there earlier as well. I saw you <laughs> yeah. that out. 
Definitely Irish. Uh, yeah, that's spot on. So everybody at home, thanks for listening. And Murray and Owen will be back on Monday for members. And we will be back before we take a bit of a summer break for a, a farewell pod next Thursday. Uh, until then, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Robbie Robbie weekly.